Father, we, we come before you again in Jesus' name, uh, asking for your grace again, Lord. Uh, God, that you'd speak to us in your word. Uh, Father, we, we really do want to hear from you, God. Uh, that's the only way that any of this matters and makes sense, so we pray that you'll speak to us by your word, Father. Uh, God, we pray that your spirit would work in us, God. God, we pray that your word wouldn't fall on deaf ears, God, and hardened hearts, God, but that your spirit would open our eyes, would open our ears, would open our hearts, Father, to obey you. Father, we pray that you would change our hearts as we listen to the sermon, Father, so that as we go throughout our weeks, we go into our weeks as different people who love you more than we did before. Show yourself to us, God. Make your son plain to us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, like Mo said, uh, this is going to be the last week here, uh, at least right now, with this uh, mini-series called You All, where we're talking about things that uh, Jesus calls us to be now that we're believers. And specifically, we've been talking about things uh, that have changed about us, things we're called to be as it relates to one another. So not just our own kind of individual, personal things that have changed about us, though that's part of it, but specifically uh, the things God has called us to uh, in relationship to one another. So we're going to continue in that. We've talked about us being counselors the first week. Last week we talked about us being teachers. And this week we're going to talk about, like Mo said, now we're going to talk about us being givers. And I know some of y'all are nervous even now. Uh, I want to start uh, by talking about a guy that many of us have probably heard of. It's a, it's a famous story. Maybe not all of us. Bernie Madoff. Are we familiar with him, Bernie Madoff? Raise your hand if you know who Bernie Madoff is. Okay. Well, Bernie Madoff, he was a, he was a former stockbroker and he was uh, an investment uh, financial investor. And so he built this, this company, this wealth management business in the 70s, and it was just hugely successful. So people kept flocking to it. And then he started to have these amazing returns that he could give people that people couldn't get anywhere else, so people were flocking to him. So as the, the business went on, he ended up having more than 13,000 clients who were all giving him lots of money to invest it well. So they'd say, hey, here's this money we have to invest. Since we don't know what we're doing, you invest it for us in the good stuff, and you get us the good returns. And so he said he would do that. He'd show him these incredible returns and this successful business. But that's not what we know him for. We don't know him as just some real successful businessman, a brilliant investor. We know him as a thief. Right. His whole business was a fraud. It was this Ponzi scheme. So he was really just getting all this money for himself. And the really tragic thing about it is that people really trusted him. So there were some people who invested their entire uh, retirement with him, their entire life savings, what they were counting on for their kids college. They gave this money to him and he in just horrific ways stole it from them, ruined lives, took people's entire life savings. And there's still people struggling as a result of what he did. And so he's in prison now for 150 years. I don't know if he's a vampire or a term. I'm not sure how those sentences work, but his sentence is 150 years. And what was so wrong about what he did is not that he spent a lot of money. It's not even he didn't make the best investment choices. What was wrong about it is he spent somebody else's money, right? Money that didn't belong to him, money that people gave him to use for their good, and he used it for his own. That's the definition of being a thief. That's the definition of stealing. He took something that wasn't his. Now, while many of us would not ever think of robbing other people like that, taking their life savings and ruining their lives, the truth is we rob God in similar ways all the time. Because the truth is every single thing that we have, 
our time, our gifts, our money, our jobs, everything that we have belongs to God. Right? And God has given it to us almost like we're investors. So what we know clearly from Scripture, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. And the way the psalm reasons is basically like God made everything, so it's his. You can't really argue with that point. Right? He made it. He's the one who put it there. He thought it up. Uh, so he knows what its purposes are, and he's the rightful owner of it. And so because God owns everything, when he gives that to us in order to invest it for the reason he made the whole world for, which is his glory, he gave it to us to, to use for his glory. When we decide we're just going to use it any old way that we want to, we're doing the same thing Bernie Madoff did, except much worse, because we're robbing God himself. In Psalm 50, uh, God is rebuking his people for some of the ways they've sinned against him. And I love this so much. I love the parts in Scripture where God... Uh, responds to somebody in just a real gangster way. I don't have any other way to say it. But here's what he says in Psalm 50. He's basically saying to him, you know, y'all are making all these sacrifices to me, but your hearts are not submitted to me. So he's saying, look, if I needed something, I wouldn't ask you for it because I own everything anyway. So he's saying, if you think you're pleasing me just by sacrificing a bunch of animals at the altar as if I'm hungry and I need meat, he said, if I needed something, I wouldn't ask you. I own everything in the entire universe. Right? And because of God's ownership of everything in the entire universe, it changes the way that we should think about how we use it. He owns everything. That means even the stuff that's our stuff isn't really our stuff. When I was a, a kid, uh, grew up in Dallas, sometimes my dad, so my dad didn't care nothing about my privacy. That wasn't a thing that mattered to him. Like, you don't get privacy until you grow. And so, Sometimes I would come home and maybe he like went in my room and I'm like, Dad, can I get some privacy or no? Right? This is my room. This is my space. Why did you come in there? And he would say, boy, this is not your room. This is my room. I just let you stay in it. <laughs> and he, he made it clear many times that he believed that very firmly. And I hated when he said that because I was like, Dad, this is my room. Whose desk is this? Whose clothes are in here? Right? Who's... Pictures of rappers all over the wall. This is my room. This is not your room. You make sure you don't pay for nothing. You don't earn nothing. This is mine. I just let you stay in it. And uh, why that drove me crazy at the time is true, right? It was mine in the sense that my stuff was in there. I slept in there. But I didn't own that room. He did. He paid for it. And he made sure that I understood that every single day. And in a similar way, all the stuff that we think of as ours, our clothing, our time, our friends, our jobs, our money, everything that we have is God. It belongs to him. So that's not to say that, okay, well, if everything's God's, I guess I shouldn't think about paying my bills anymore. I shouldn't really think about my time. God's anyway. I shouldn't have to think about how to use it. That's bad application of the sermon. <laughs> Instead, we should change the way that we think about ourselves, not as owners of the stuff that's ours, but instead as managers. You're a manager of the stuff that you have. You know what a manager is? You know, somebody owns a McDonald's, but they're not there every day. They put someone in charge of it to keep things in order so that the business will run properly. And God, not because he needs us, just because he's gracious enough to include us in what he's doing, he has entrusted us with stuff. The specifics that we're going to talk about today is our time and our gifts and our money, but he's entrusted us with that stuff, and he's told us that we're supposed to use it in a particular way. And so we don't want to rob God. And so here's the thing uh, that I want to drive home as we think about these things. God-given resources are meant to be shared, not hoarded. 
right? So the stuff that you've been given is meant to be shared. It's meant to be given. It's meant to be used. It's not meant to just be hoarded for your own personal pleasure and enjoyment alone. All right, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that in uh, three areas. We're going to start by talking about time. Time. Now, most of us don't think of time uh, as a gift, right? We think about time. Well, we don't think about time very often at all unless we're just looking at the clock because we're waiting for the day to be over. We're trying to go home. Or if we got a paper due and we're typing furiously, trying to finish that up, watching the clock. That, that's the only time we think about time. But we don't really think about time as a gift very often. It's just this kind of divine, uh, defined period of minutes and hours. We got 24 hours in a day. They go by too fast. We wish we had more, but we know that's not how it works. And that's pretty much all we think about. We think normally we have a lot of it. We think we are rich in time. We think we have plenty of time, especially while we're young. We think that time just goes on endlessly, right? And the only thing that really matters, as long as I take care of these responsibilities, it doesn't matter what happens around those things. As long as something gets done, we got to get that project done, or we got to pay those bills on time, or get that birthday gift out. Outside of that, getting tasks done, we can do whatever we want. Well, I want you to know that Scripture gives a really different understanding of how we should relate to time, not just oriented around whether or not your task ends up getting done. That's not the only thing God cares about when it comes to your time. When Scripture talks about time, it talks about it uh, not as like this entitlement, but more like a treasure. Not something you're just entitled to, but like someone has put a treasure in your hand, like it's a loan from God that needs to be invested well. The time, we treat time like it's dirt, like there's a ton of it, and who cares? Doesn't matter. When instead, we should treat time more like food. Like there may be a lot of it, kind of, but it matters a lot. It's valuable. And people who don't have it desperately wish they had more. Right? So when we treat time like dirt, instead of something valuable like food that's desperately needed, that should be honored, we spit in God's face and his generosity, that gift that he's given us. So we want to use it well. So listen to what Paul says, Ephesians chapter 5. And like these last couple of weeks, we'll jump around in different passages. But I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 5. The verses will be up on the screen. Uh, Paul has been, you know, beginning to tell the Ephesian church what their, uh, their life should look like now that they're in Jesus. And this is what he says from Ephesians 5 verse 15. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. So Paul, as he's helping them think about how to live their lives, what it looks like to live, in a, live your life in a way that shows that you now know Jesus, and he tells them, look carefully how you walk, not as wise but as unwise. Basically, he's saying, watch your steps. All right, that's something we might say with somebody just walking regularly, right? Watch your steps, watch where you're going. And what happens if you don't watch your steps? You may bump into something, you may fall and trip, you may walk in front of a car, you may do bad things if you don't watch where you're going. And so Paul is saying, Paul uses walk to talk about our behavior. So when Paul talks about our walk, he's talking about just the way that we live, the way that we are. So he's saying, look, now that you know Jesus, so there was a time when you just did whatever you wanted, whatever you felt like, you just chased after your passions. He's saying, no, no, now something has changed. Now you're a son of the God of the universe, right? Now you've been saved by Jesus, and now you need to pay very close attention to how you walk. So he's saying, watch how you walk. Not unwisely, not as unwise, but as wise. So in the same way that you can 
uh, not watch where you're going and run into something. You can not watch what you're doing with your life, and you can do the wrong thing. You can get yourself in danger. You, you can mess your life up. You can steer yourself away from true life and steer yourself towards death. He's saying, pay attention. Walk wisely. Walking wisely means taking into account what God has told us about life. And then applying it to your life. That's wisdom. Wisdom isn't just learning some doctrine. That's not wisdom. Right? You can learn some stuff. You can repeat some stuff. Wisdom is, is like skillful living. Wisdom is understanding what God has said about the world. And now that you understand the world in the right way, living in light of that. That's what wisdom is. He said, I want you to walk in that way. And the first way he tells them to do that is to make the best use of the time. He's not just telling them that, you know, Jesus, just avoid things. He wants them to do good things with their time and not only do good things. He says, I want you to make the best use of your time. I want you to try to find the best way to use your time, to use his valuable resource to buy good things. That's part of what it means to walk wisely in God's world. God cares about how we use it. So, look, even if we're OK, completely wasting our time, as long as we just get this project done or just show up to work on time or just. Don't mess up too bad. Even if we're okay with that, God is not okay with that. That's not how he's called us to think about our time. He's called us to think about it a lot more carefully. Anything in your life that matters, you think about carefully, hopefully. When stuff matters, you think about it carefully and you plan it out. Right? So, you know, a lot of people make, and you should, make a budget. Like, how are you going to spend your money? Because if you don't, you may buy those new J's and you realize, oh, can't eat this week. That'd be a bad decision. So you got to plan that out carefully. Right? When stuff matters, if, you go on, if you're about to go on vacation, you don't just say, oh, I got a vacation next week, and then you just, on Monday, you're like, what should I do? No, you know, if I want to use this well, I got to make plans. I got to make sure I get my ticket. I got to make sure I show up on time. I got to make sure uh, I call off from work. I got to make sure I do all these things, because that's something that's important to you. But here's the thing. We don't usually think of our time that way. We just think about random tasks, and we just kind of drag ourselves from task to task. And God is saying, no, you need to consider very carefully how you walk and how you use your time. Now, hearing we should make the best use of our time could be paralyzing. You could be like, how can I know it's the best use, though? I don't know if this is going to happen and that's going to happen. How do I know it's going to happen after that? Jesus knows you're not omniscient, okay? He knows you don't know everything. Now, he hasn't called us to be God in the way we use our time, but as the best as you know, try to make the best use of your time in light of what God has already told us uh, in his word. Time management is a thing that uh, is, is difficult for a lot of us. It's a thing I don't do really naturally. Like, my wife is naturally really good at time management. I'm naturally really bad, and God has grown me a lot to be pretty good at managing my time. One thing that's made me manage my time well is my health, so I never know when I'm going to feel well enough to get something done. So when I do feel well enough, I feel like if I don't do it now, I may never get to do this. And that's actually been a really gracious thing God has done for me, because he's helped me not to see time as something that can just be kind of thrown away. He's made it clear to me because of my health, and I'm not always feeling well enough to do what I need to do. He's made it really clear to me, time is really valuable. This moment that you have right now is the best time to do what you need to do, because this is the only time you know for sure you have. And whether or not we're sick, that is a reality for us. Sincerely, the only moment that you know you have on this earth is the moment that you're in. So when we just assume we can just get to something later, not only is that foolish and not only will it keep us from doing work to our best, the best that we can do it, but it's also proud. 
right? It assumes God is just going to keep giving you more time. Well, instead of being proud and saying, God, you'll give me more time later, we should be faithful in the ways that we should be in the moment we're in. That, that's the kind of faithfulness God is called to. But why do we waste our time? You know, we forget Psalm 24 that God owns everything. We think we own our time, right? When, when Paul's even talking about sexual immorality, he says, look, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. That body that you're sinning with belongs to God. And it's the same thing for all of our life. That time that you're using to sin or to waste, that time really belongs to God. It doesn't belong to you. The other reason we waste our time is because we have an unhealthy view of work and service and good things that we could do with our time. What I mean by that is sometimes we will do everything in our power to avoid good things, right? Sometimes uh, there may be somebody in the church who's been wanting to hang out with you, and you know that, you know, whenever you talk to them, they ask you real deep and intense questions, and you don't know if you really want that, and so you do everything you can to avoid that person. So after church ends, you like, just to make sure there's no chance I'm going to get to talk to them. Or even with procrastination, right? So if I think back to, uh, to high school and how I thought about homework, man, I would, I would do anything in the world but my homework. I would, I would talk to my friends on the phone for hours. We ain't talking about nothing. We were like watching the TV show and laughing together. Just a high school waste of time. Just foolishness. But there's this thing that we do where where we see work as if it's somehow evil, like it's a bad use of our time, like we should not do that. And often when we actually do the work we're called to do, we're like, oh, that wasn't that bad. Should have done this years ago when I was supposed to. Right? God has called us to to see those things, those good things, like work or like service or or like spending time with other people. Uh, He's called us to see those things not as evil things that we should avoid, but as good things. And the reason he gives them for using their time well is not what you'd guess. He says, because the days are evil. And he means, we, you know, we live in this fallen world where everything is falling around us. Where most of the people that we're going to see and interact with don't know Jesus, right? So they haven't been given this new life. So he's saying, when you're among them, I want there to be some distinction. I want people to see this wise person who thinks carefully about their steps, who loves other people, who shows justice and mercy to other people, who, who, who's pure. Right? These days are evil. So in those days, I want you to uh, live in, in, in the right way among them. And that's one of the things we want to think about, even as we interact with our neighbors. We do want people to be able to tell that there's a difference in us, that Christ has actually changed us. We don't have to wear a I'm redeemed by Jesus t-shirt, but people should be able to tell by your life. And, and the other reason he says because the days are evil, I think, is because our hearts, our fallen hearts will drift away. And they will drift towards things that are not good uses of our time. So he's saying, watch how you walk carefully. Try to make the best use of your time. Don't just go with the flow, right? In this evil world, the current is going this way, away from Jesus. Don't just go with the flow. Make the best use of your time because the days are evil. So my prayer is that we wouldn't waste our time because wasting time is insane. It's like burning money. The only difference is you can get more money and you cannot get more time. Time is a precious resource that we want to use well. What if you had no idea how much money you had? Like, no idea. I bet it would change how you spent your money. If you weren't sure if you had a million dollars or a hundred dollars, I bet you would spend it carefully. There's no way for us to know how much time we have. 
We can look at our bank account statement. We can go online. We can look at the ATM. We can't. There's no app to show you how much time you have left. Right? And because of that, that should lead us to want to use it very carefully. We don't know how much we have. So how should we spend that time? And if it's really a valuable uh, resource, uh, we should use it for things that matter, eternal things. You wouldn't invest your money in a business you knew was going down. We should not invest all our time in a world that we know is going down. Now, here's what that means. That doesn't mean don't worry about anything that happens in this world. It means think about those things from an eternal perspective. Think about your work as unto the Lord. Right? Think about your neighbors as loving them as eternal souls that God loves. Tell people about Jesus because we're eternal souls that want to spend an eternity with God. Think about eternity. Think with an eternal perspective. Invest in things that matter uh, with our time and things that will last. And you notice one of the things that he says when, uh, further on in this passage uh, when he talks about, you know, be careful how you walk. And he continues, um, verse 17, he says, therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So don't be drunk with wine. That's how everyone else is living. Don't do that. That's unwise. And what does he give as the, instead of doing that, do this. Instead of drunken debauchery, he says, instead of that, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything um, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. His negative example is drunken foolishness. His positive example is loving and building one another up, the very stuff we've been talking about, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, teaching and admonishing one another, gathering around the word of Jesus. So when we begin to think about how we use our time, one of the main things we should be thinking about is how we use our time among God's people. Right. So, you know, if we are a family of believers in Jesus, then we have to be willing to give our time to one another to build one another up. This thing just doesn't work if we're not ever willing to spend our time on each other. Right. Time is not a resource that's been given to you to hoard. It's been given to you to use, to give away. And a great way to give that is to other people. One of the ways we know that is because the stuff that Jesus calls us to do with one another takes time. Now, he tells us, you know, bear with the faint hearted, you know, be patient with the weak. Like, these things take time. So one of my encouragements is we all have these super busy lives and we have a lot of stuff going on. Like we've talked about, you have to consider how you walk and you have to plan your life in a way where you can give some of your time to God's people. This doesn't happen on accident. Right. So we look up and our lives are too busy to ever spend time with any of the people we've made a covenant to. And that's because we've planned this other stuff. We spend a lot of time planning other stuff. Do we ever think carefully and plan to spend time and to do the stuff Scripture calls us to do with one another, to teach one another, to counsel one another, to love one another, to bear one another's burdens? That requires us spending our time. And if we don't see God's family that we've committed to, as important enough to spend our time on, then we don't value the things that God values. We know that God's bride, his church, is of utmost importance to him. It's the main way he's going to show off his glory in the world. These are his children he loves. So let's use some of our time for one another. Amen? Amen. So we, let's, matter of fact, why don't you think about your week coming up and think about 
where in your week you can plan some time to do some of the stuff that God has called us to do. This is why it's good to join a small group, right? This is, what, this is one of the reasons small groups are not in the Bible. Small groups are something we're using to do some of the stuff that God has called us to do. All right, so it's a great opportunity to spend time. You know, sometimes a week comes up and you don't feel like hanging out with people, but when you commit it and it's like, well, it's Wednesday, I said I was going to be there, sometimes that's like a good little push for you. If some of you are introverted like me or if some of you are, are awkward like others, then look, small groups are good. Look, no, we are all awkward to an extent. Some of us are awkward in interactions, and it's harder to get to know people. If we pretend like none of us are awkward, we're all going to keep being surprised. We're awkward. It's okay. It's fine. Small groups is one thing that helps, right? So if you're not the kind of person who after service you want to run around and talk to and meet 27 people, small groups is a good way to like just something to grab onto and to help kind of push us into those relationships. That's a good use of our time. Why would we come here and sit here for a couple hours on Sunday morning and worship together? It's a good use of our time to worship Jesus together. Wednesday night Bible study, why would somebody take their Wednesday night after work and show up and talk about the Bible? It's a good use of our time. If God is who he said he was, if he paid for his bride like he said he did, then of course this is valuable enough for us to give our time to. So I want to encourage you not to cut God's family out when you think about how to use your time. So God, the resources we've been given have been given to us to give, not to hoard time. Number two, gifts. Can somebody please grab me a bottle of water? I feel like my throat's going to close up. That would not be good for the sermon. Uh, another resource we have at our disposal is our gifts. Now, it seems strange to talk about giving things away, and then to talk about our gifts, because we think, no, a gift is from God, I've received that. But this is just the weird reality of the Christian life. Everything we have has been given to us, and everything we have we're supposed to give. It's just the reality of being a Christian and being a human being dependent on a sovereign God. Thank you, Lisa. Um, there is no, there's nothing that you have that you can give away that's not a gift. So it's not strange to talk about giving away gifts. Uh, we've been given to them by God. Sometimes we think of uh, gifts from God like we think of uh, Christmas gifts from Santa Claus. Like it's been dropped off and given to me so that I can just enjoy this. Thanks, Jesus, and I'm going to enjoy it and move on. But instead, it's not like that at all. God has given us gifts, specifically our spiritual gifts, not just for us. Of course he wants to, to enjoy the gifts he's given us, but he's given those to us to build one another up, purposely given to us to serve one another for his glory and for the good uh, of the body. So a quick word about spiritual gifts. Sorry. Um, it's hard to define spiritual gifts. One, because the New Testament, there's not just one list. So there are lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament in different parts, but they're not the same list everywhere. It's different ones in different places, right? So, and there's no like, and now I'm telling you, Ephesians, spiritual gifts are, right? There's not a part like that. The word isn't used that often, the word for, for spiritual gift. The, the interesting thing about those different lists, the reason I don't think there's just any list is like we know all the spiritual gifts in those lists, because they use all those different lists, it would be weird if Paul was like, Corinthians, I'm only going to tell you about these gifts. You got to figure the rest out. It's like, oh, Roman, I'm going to only tell you about these two. Y'all got to figure the rest out, or maybe y'all should text each other. I don't think Paul is doing that. I think in each of those, he's given some examples of some spiritual gifts. 
And one of the other things that makes it hard to really understand and define spiritual gifts is because the kinds of spiritual gifts we hear about in Scripture are so varied. There's so many different kinds. There's some that seem obviously spiritual and supernatural, like speaking in tongues, other languages that you've never learned, or like prophecy, right? Those are the kinds of gifts, or like gifts of healing. Those are miraculous gifts that are obviously spiritual gifts. And then there are other gifts that seem like stuff that people could be naturally good at, like hospitality or encouragement or teaching. Right. So when we begin. So if you're going to say, no, spiritual gifts are only those things that you had no gifting in before. And then after you got saved, miraculously, you had it. Well, there's some people who think the spiritual gift is hospitality. You're telling them that ain't your gift, even though you think it is. I think what we see in Scripture is there are some of those gifts that are miraculously given to us uh, after we uh, believe in Jesus. And then there are those other gifts that we already have these natural gifts, but they're empowered and enabled by the spirit of God when we trust Jesus. So that, you know, there could be uh, a brother like Wes Ellis, who is an educator. He's, he's a teacher, right? And so he's naturally good at that. But because Jesus has snatched him up and has saved his soul, he's now empowered and enabled that gift to explain things to other people. And he's using it as Wes leads Bible studies at his school, as he tells people about Jesus, as he disciples and builds up other people. God has taken that gift he'd already given naturally, and he's empowered and enabled it. And it's a spiritual gift now used for the building up of the body. Does that make sense? So when we begin to talk about spiritual gifts, there's a wide range of, uh, of things that we could be talking about. But let me tell you the thing that's always the same whenever spiritual gifts are brought up is it's always stressed. These things are there for the building up of the body. They're there for the sake of serving and building up other people. So even if you have a, a gift that seems miraculous, you know, so if I can speak in a language I've never learned, that's a flashy gift, Right? This is what Paul gets on them on about tongues. He's talking about tongues and prophecy. Right? He's saying the purpose of all of these is for the building up of the body. Um, every single uh, one of them is for that. So listen to what uh, Peter says, 1 Peter 4.10. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's telling us really clearly how our gifts should be used in the context of our church family to serve one another and build each other up, not to impress one another, not to be superior over one another, Right. Not to be even kept from one another, but they to be used to serve one another. Here's the interesting thing. When the Bible talks about spiritual gifts, it doesn't only talk about them being given to an individual. It talks about them being given to the body. So if the Lord has given me a spiritual gift for the body and I choose to keep it from the body, I'm not just robbing myself or robbing God. I'm also robbing the body he's given it to. Right. Does that make sense? It's like if someone gives you a Christmas gift and you decide not to use it, or you gave it to two of you and you're like, nope, neither one of us are going to use this. The gifts God has given you, he gave you to help build up uh, the body that you're a part of. So we don't want to just use them selfishly. There's sometimes where God has given us gifts that could serve the body, and there's stuff that we're also so good at that we get paid for. And so then it becomes a difficult thing of thinking through, do I ever just do this thing in a way that just serves God's body? And I think many of us will find ourselves in places like that all the time. And I just want to encourage you. 
If there's a gift that would serve the body that the Holy Spirit can empower and enable to build up that body, I want to encourage you to use that to build up the church. God gave you that gift for a reason. Now, that's not to say if you're a graphic designer, for instance, that you should neglect your work and do incredible graphic design for the church all day, every day. That's not what I'm encouraging you to do. But I'm saying with wisdom, think about the ways that the gifts that God has given you can can build up the body. And it's going to take some sacrifice and time spent, right? So, again, if we're a family and we're a young church family, we have lots of needs. And if God has given you gifts that can help meet those needs, that can help build this body, I want you to think about whether or not there are ways that you can kind of jump in and serve and build us up. Now, does this mean that we can't serve in areas where we don't feel gifted? No, right? There's people with a gift of hospitality. Every Christian is called to be hospitable. There are people with gifts of evangelism. All of us are called to evangelize. I could go on and on and on. That's not to say we're not to serve in areas where we don't feel gifted. I think the best way to figure out how to serve isn't like, man, where are my spiritual gifts and do they have something that doesn't? I think you should jump in and meet needs where you see. And as you serve and you help meet needs, you can think about how your gifts help to meet those needs. Right? And then maybe when we get further, you know, when uh, an organization is further along or a church is further along, anything's further along, everybody can be more specialized. We have only existed for a year, so there's still an amount of everybody has to do everything to this. Right? So when I was in uh, Philly, I joined a church plant. I was 18 years old. There was some stuff I was excited about. Children's ministry wasn't necessarily one of them. But it was like, we're trying to keep the thing going right now. We can either have kids in the service screaming at us, or some of us can sacrifice and, you know, help and, and serve with the kids. And so sometimes I would serve with the kids, and, I, and then every now and then somebody wouldn't show up, and Miss Val, who was over there, she'd be like, Trap. I'd be like, Trap, I'm trying to hit a word. Trap, come on. And I had to go because I wanted to serve. That was how our church survived was people making those sacrifices to serve, even in areas where they didn't feel gifted. And so we've seen people, specifically with children's ministry, do this in really amazing, encouraging ways. Even while we don't really have that many people to do it, where they serve week after week after week after week after week after week. They're sitting in service. Someone else doesn't show up. Someone calls them out of service. They serve week after week after week. To the point where, you know, some people, there were seasons where they hadn't been in a service for two months. And they were serving. This is one of those times in the life of our church, the unique time, when pretty much in all areas, it's like all hands on deck. We got to jump in, right? Same thing for that church I was at in Philly. If we don't want all the kids in here screaming at us while we try to hear the word, all of us going to have to scream like, Mo, if we going to be able to hear anything. I'm going to say, you said it yourself. I'll just miss you. Uh, if we want to be able to worship Jesus freely, right, then then we have to make sacrifices. All of us have to make sacrifices to jump in and serve. So talking about using gifts to serve doesn't mean we can't serve in ways we don't feel particularly gifted. Does that make sense? One of the reasons God has given you the gifts he's given you is so you can build up the local body that you're a part of. And it's a gift that God would allow us to, to help serve him in those ways. Third thing we'll talk about, last thing we we'll talk about time, talk about gifts, we'll talk about money. Again, all of these resources have been given to us to give, to share, not to hoard money. It's always awkward to talk about money in church because a lot of time we've seen people talk about money in church in unhelpful ways. The concept of giving has been abused by greedy dudes who just want money. You got too many people who have poor church members and rich pastors. That happens way too often and they keep saying give money. 
You'll never hear us stand on the stage and say, give a $10 seed, you'll get a $10,000 harvest. You will never hear us say some mess like that because it's not in the Bible anywhere. That's not in the Bible. You'll never hear us try to unnecessarily just beg you to just give us more money because we just need more money in the past and needs to be more blessed than you so you can get your blessing. That is foolishness. That's not in the Bible. Right? So it would be unfaithful for us to stand up here and say stuff like that. But you know what else would be unfaithful? Is if we stood up here and we ignored all the places in Scripture where God calls us to give. And if we never taught you that part of Scripture, God has called us to proclaim the whole counsel of God uh, to, to the flock that he's allowed us to help lead. So let's talk about what God has said in Scripture about giving. Uh, this is another area where the way we're to think about this is so different than our culture. We've been told by our culture that the most important thing that you uh, in life is the stuff that you have. A lot of people like to point fingers that hip-hop, hip-hop does do this a lot, but, you know, hip-hop is just more bold about it. You know, materialism is an American core value. Hip-hop just happens to be more bold about it. Same thing for violence and misogyny. Hip-hop is just more bold about it. That's a side note, right? But this is a core value of our culture. Get every single thing that you have. A couple of our culture's poets, Wu-Tang said, cash rules everything around me, cream. Uh, Puff Daddy and the family said, it's all about the Benjamins, baby. Uh, Drake said, only broke dudes act like money isn't everything, right? Hip-hop is the loudest voice for this, but it's, but it's a cultural uh, core value. And we've been trained to build our life around stuff that won't last. That's what our coaches taught us to do. Build your life around the stuff that you know for sure isn't going to last. When you go in the grave, the stuff that will stay here, like the stuff Solomon's talking about. Even a rich man, he dies and he leaves everything to somebody else, and he doesn't know what they're going to do with it. Right? Our culture has taught us to do that, and Scripture tells us to do something very different. In Luke 12, Jesus tells a parable about a man, and he makes the same point. He said a rich man, you know, he builds a bunch of barns. He stores all of his good, and he relaxes. And he says, but soon he's going to die, and somebody else will get all his possessions. And Jesus calls him a fool. That is foolish, right? To relax and store up stuff that's not going to last. That would be like me putting, you know, if I was thinking about my family last, and I put all my cash, I took it all out of the bank, and I just put it in a burning house. I think this is the best investment. You know this is burning down. Don't put, all your, don't put all your efforts there. This is why Jesus talks about storing up treasures in heaven. He says treasures on earth, moth can, moth can come and mess them up, chew holes in them. Rust can destroy them. He says store up treasures in heaven, the kind of treasures that last forever. First Timothy uh, 6, 7 says we brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of the world. We came into the world empty-handed. We don't leave the world empty-handed. With that in mind, so that's a good thing. We know how this ends. No matter how rich you get, you're going to leave empty-handed. There's nothing you can do to change that part. So we should think about what, what we should do then. So does the Bible tell us as believers that we should be generous and give our money? Absolutely. Scripture tells us that absolutely. We should be generous and give our money. Scripture tells us the love of money is the root of all evil. Scripture tells us that we should give to and help care for the poor. There are so many ways that we can give our money and generously help one another. Now, when you look in the Old Testament, how the Old Testament talks about giving, a term a lot of us are familiar with is tithing. Tithe literally means a tenth, right? 
So you heard a lot of people talk about tithes and offering. In the Old Testament, there was a tithe, right? The nation of Israel had to give 10% off everything off top. It really ended up being about 23% because of the way it worked. But they, it was almost like a tax. It was an obligation. It wasn't like they showed up at service and they could decide whether to put it in. It was off top. So that the way that God put this obligation in place for this nation, he put it in place so that if you didn't give that tenth, it wasn't like you just you know, we're wrestling through whether or not you should give. It was that you were stealing from God because that first 10% belonged to him. And God did that in order to teach his people that everything belonged to him. And even he wanted their first fruits of everything because he deserves the best of everything. He was showing them who he is and what his character was like. So then when we get to the New Testament, the question is, are we supposed to tithe? What has scripture called us to now? And I'll try to say this part very briefly. Um, the New Testament doesn't command us to tithe, as in that tenth. So if you're like, yeah, man, I'm tithing 5%, that's not, tithe means a tenth, right? Does the New Testament tell us to, to do that? The New Testament nowhere commands us to tithe, right? But Jesus does seem to affirm it. As he's rebuking the Pharisees, he's like, yeah, man, y'all tithe from all of this stuff, from all of your possessions you do, even down to the smallest part of your possessions, but you ignore these things. So he's like, keep doing that, but also pay attention to justice and other people. Right? Jesus seems to affirm it. I, I think the way that we should, we should think about this is we should think about a, a tithe at tenth. We should think of that as a good starting place for our giving. Right, because even in the nation of Israel, they gave that tenth, and then they gave these kind of voluntary offerings to the Lord too. I think that we should think about that tithe, that tenth, that ten percent of, of, of what we have as a good starting place for our giving to God. Just like other principles in, in the Old Testament, even if the exact law that was there for the nation of Israel isn't on us, there are good principles there that teach us about what God is like and what he deserves, and God has not changed. He still owns it all. He still deserves the best from us. I think a tenth is a good place to start. And here's the thing. Um, scripture does often encourage us to this kind of generosity. And the place that Scripture most often talks about giving to in the New Testament for believers is to the local church. So that the local church can do what the local church does. So I want to talk about uh, some of the different uses of Different ways we're supposed to use the funds that Scripture tells us about. Because someone may say, why are we just giving money? Why don't, why don't we just give money to some other stuff? It's good. Why, why would why Scripture be telling us to give money to our local church? I want to talk about some categories of, of different ways we're supposed to use our church funds. First category is we're supposed to be helping poor brothers and sisters in other places. That's one of the things that we're supposed to do. Because with our, with our money as a church, and we'll be talking about our budget in our next members meeting, right? We, we're putting our money together to do the stuff God has called us to do, right? So it's different than when I just give to something random. We are all saying, here's what we collectively want to do with our money. And here's, here's some of the stuff Scripture talks about. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 to 3, Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints... He's talking about poor brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, right, collecting money for them. He says, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. He's saying, start collecting that money now. Put some aside and collect that money so that I can take it to our poor brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. A couple of things to note. He talks about when you gather on the first day. This is part of why we gather on Sunday. It's the first day. It's the Lord's day. Jesus got up from the grave. He's saying, when you come together on the first day, 
that's when the collection happens. This is part of why we do offering when we gather on Sunday morning because we've been commanded to do it that way. And Paul is saying there are brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who are poor, who don't have what they need. And because you're family in Christ, it makes sense that you would put some money together to help serve and help them. That's one of the things that we as a church want to do with our money. Especially Corinth was a wealthy place. They had lots of money. So he wanted them to serve others uh, with that money uh, that they could give. Um, let's go to uh, 2 Corinthians 8. This is more helping poor brothers and sisters. He says, I'm going to skip around in this passage. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, so lots of joy, lots of poverty, they've overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So stop real quick. You would normally think that anytime you put extreme poverty in the mix, generosity is not something that comes from it. But he's saying their abundant joy, when it's mixed with their extreme poverty, it leads to extreme generosity. Right? So he's saying, look, those churches don't have a lot of money either, but they've been extremely Generous. Verse 3, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And he goes on. I'm going to go to verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. He's saying, show your love by giving. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Look, I've said this before. What Jesus did at the cross is the starting place for all Christian morals. What Christ did at the cross is the perfect example of every virtue that we should be following. Right? So he's telling them, look, even you can look at Macedonia. They're poor and they were able to give a lot. You should be generous too. But the main example he wants to give them is of the Lord Jesus, who's the eternal son of God, who's in heaven, right? Has no problems, has no needs, but decides to put on human flesh. So when he talks about rich being made poor, we're talking about the eternal son of God who owned everything and holds the universe together by the word of his power, putting on human flesh, becoming frail, needing to learn, needing to drink water and eat food and being around other sinful people. That's what he means by eternally rich became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Right. So he's saying so that you, by the fact that he made himself nothing, the fact that he emptied himself, the fact that he became a man, that by the fact that he did that, you can now meet God. You can know some of the things that he left, that perfect fellowship with God, that eternity. God will pour his grace out on you for an eternity. Look, if if anyone's here and they don't know Jesus, if you ever want to know why Christians want to talk about being generous, want to talk about loving others, want to talk about humility, want to talk about laying our lives down, want to talk about justice, anything we want to talk about, our main example, who we take our cues from is the Lord Jesus himself and specifically what he did on the cross. There has never been a greater act of love. There has never been a greater act of power. There has never been a greater act of deliverance than what Christ did at the cross. That's the starting place. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives. Lay your lives down like Christ did for the church. Right? Hebrews 12, Jesus endured the the pain for the joy that was set before him. You endure based on what Jesus already did. Uh, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, have the same mind among yourself that was in Christ Jesus, that humility who, though he was God, emptied himself and became nothing, obedient to the point of death on the cross. 1 John 3 
Right? As Christ has loved you, love one another. Lay down your lives for your brothers, just like Christ did for us. I could go on and on and on because the best example of the way that we should live our lives is what Jesus did when he gave his up. That includes our generosity. So if you want to know what we gather about, what our morals are rooted in, what we are so excited about, it's what Christ did for us on the cross. We want you to know that same joy. Jesus wants to generously give you eternal life. And, and you can have it right now. You know, if we let go of our sins, trust in Jesus. You can know Jesus. You can know this great generosity that he offers. Amen? Yeah, Jesus is a starting place for that. And uh, based on what Christ has done, we should be trying to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in great need, too. 1 Corinthians 9, 6 to 15, I encourage you to read that this afternoon. Another good passage about that. It talks about being a cheerful giver, too. Uh, God doesn't just want us to just kind of begrudgingly, dutifully, just kind of, whatever, God, here you go. He wants us to cheerfully give uh, from a joyful heart, right? So we should care for poor brothers and sisters. Acts 2, 44 and 45, they're caring for each other, selling their possessions, caring for each other. Ephesians 4 says, stop stealing, work hard so you can have some money to help share with others. Uh, one of the ways we should think about our giving is to uh, support our poor brothers and sisters in other places, even if we're poor brothers and sisters, right? Because even in Macedonia, extreme poverty and abundant joy led to great generosity. Second way we should think about using our funds together is supporting missionaries. Philippians 4, uh, 4 14 and 21. Paul says, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me. And giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I receive full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Paul is basically saying to the Philippians, and he thanks them over and over in this book, like, hey, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't be able to do this gospel work. There is to be people, because we believe the Great Commission and we want disciples made of all nations, right? We want some people to be able to be set apart to give their life to proclaiming the gospel. And Paul is saying, thank you all, because nobody else was supporting me. We want that to be the testimony of us at times. Right, where there are people who say, I want the gospel to go forth and I need help and nobody's helping me. We want to be able to say, well, God, we don't have a lot, but God has given us some and we want to help support that gospel work. You know, what we do with our money and what we do with our time and what we do with our gifts says a lot about what we're passionate about. If we're passionate about the gospel going forth, that is a good use of our collective money. Right. Third thing I want to point to in the New Testament, do with our collective money, is paying pastors. This sounds self-serving. 1 Timothy 5, 17, 18. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Right? Paul is telling Timothy, he's saying the elders who rule well or who lead well, who oversee well, right, should be given a double honor. He's saying you should, you should honor them. Right. Don't muzzle the eyes. Basically, they're working and they deserve to be able to be paid for that work. So every pastor who serves at this church won't be paid. I wasn't paid for most of the life of, of this church. 
but there will be other pastors who won't be paid, those who serve as kind of lay pastors. And then there will be those of us who are set aside to be able to give a lot of time to proclaiming God's word and to facilitating ministry. Just a reminder, you're not paying us to do all the ministry. You're paying us to equip you for the ministry and to facilitate, to set things up so that that ministry can happen. And the reason why God says this is okay is because if, uh, if all four of us, you know, we could end up in a position like this one day where we don't have enough money to pay any of the pastors and we would do our best. But if all four of us had full-time jobs and we're trying to pastor the whole church, um, then I don't think a lot of phone calls would get answered. I don't think a lot of good sermons would get preached. And we wouldn't really be able to serve y'all the way that we want to. But God is saying this is legitimate work and where Christians are willing to support ministry, it's a good thing to do. Right? And, and it's deserved. And so we, again, as a pastors, none of us are getting rich off of this. I mean, yeah. Uh, but we, we're never just going to say, hey, just give us money because we want money. We're just going to say we want to be able to set aside our time to love and to serve you. So scripture says that's a good use of our collective money. And so, again, we're, we're, doing a, uh, we're going through our budget and our next members meeting. I want to encourage you all to be there and we can talk about these things. To talk about the stuff we're using our money for. Are we giving enough money to missions? Right? Are we doing enough right here in our community with our collective money? Are we doing enough to make sure the gospel goes everywhere? Are, you know, th- there's all kinds of questions we want y'all to be actively thinking about because it's an act of worship when we give our money to God and to his purposes. Amen? So I, I, I want to I end that part thinking about the giving you know, again, this is a resource God has given you. And then when we put all of our money together, we're able to use it for the things God has called us to do as a church family. So where you see opportunities or missionaries or things that are, would be a good use of our money, let us know. Because we want to be able to excitedly. It's, isn't it exciting to be able to pull our money together? A lot of us, we don't have that much money ourselves to be able to do lots of fun stuff. But if we put all our money together and we could say, that looks like it would be fire for the gospel. Look at them. I want to support them. I want to support that particular mercy. Like, let's, let's, uh, let's be excited about the opportunity to be generous in the ways that Scripture has called us to. Right? So when we're thinking about our time, when we're thinking about our gifts, when we're thinking about our money, these are resources given to us by God. And like I said, what we spend those on shows what we're passionate about. Right? what we really think deserves our time, what's really valuable, what we really want to give it to. And I'm encouraging you to think about some of your time and to think about some of your gifts and to think about some of your money for God's purposes and God's family. We're family. We have to do this together. So my prayer is that this doesn't sound like I'm like trying to persuade y'all to help me out with my thing. This is our thing. This is our family, right? And so my encouragement is that we would all take ownership of that, right? Even when it means sacrificially giving of our time and our gifts, and our money. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much uh, for your word. Speak so clearly to us. God, and we pray as uh, we continue to worship and sing, God, you continue to show yourself worthy of any sacrifices, God, that you continue to make clear how gracious and generous you've been to us, God, and that you glorify yourself through that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.